You know, when we sit down and look at God's book and we're like, Mr. Grower, this is a million dollar conversation. You follow our recommendations compared to what you're traditionally doing. You're talking a million dollars in one year. I'm Christina Hudson Kohler, an egg processing manager living in Syracuse, New York, and you are listening to the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I sit down with soil scientist Parker Timmons. Parker is a soil scientist heretic. He is going to say things during this conversation that at least shocked me and maybe will shock you. His belief that the amount of potassium and other macronutrients that we're putting into the soil are way out of whack and that we should think about this in a very different way. Parker has a unique understanding of the difference between soil and dirt, how roots work, and really how the industrial farming system is working. This is not just a normal person rallying against the way things have been done. He is looking at science in a very different way and coming up with some answers that you may or may not agree with. I think you're going to enjoy it. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment, but earlier today, I was interviewed by Chris Bennett. Many of you know Chris through the podcast because we've done a bunch of interviews together, but Chris actually heard about what I was doing with Legacy Interviews and wanted to do a story about people preserving their family stories. Chris and I are longtime friends, and so it was interesting to talk with him as an interviewee. He was asking me about what my values were and why we were doing this, and an idea came out that I believe really deeply, but I've never really said before, and I thought it'd be worth sharing with you. One of the things that I talked about was that I believe that we are headed towards a sort of civilization monocrop. People are given the same media. We live in much the same environments. We shop at the same stores. And so much about what makes us unique and individuals, even the things about our families themselves that make us have all this diversity, is somewhat going away. And that these legacy interviews allow families to know that rich history about the things that went on in their lives, the places that they ran away from to come to this country or Canada, and what they had to do in order to survive here. This information, I believe, is deeply important for the future. It's more than just the opportunity for your family to know their history. It's a way of remembering how things were and how they worked and how people contributed their own efforts and how they thought about the nature of family and how they fit into it. This is important work that I think goes beyond any one single interview, but the only way we do these interviews is if somebody like you realizes there's a loved one that you want to capture their stories. There's somebody that you know they had experiences that will never be done in the future and that we have to capture them now so that the future can understand who they were, what they went through, and how it applies to today's lessons. So if you're interested in having me sit down with your loved one, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's go to the interview with Parker Timmons. Parker Timmons, welcome Thank to the you. podcast. I appreciate it. What is the difference between soil and dirt? Dirt is something that has been misplaced, and soil is something that you can use to nurture and grow something. So whenever you're thinking of a building project, right, they move dirt or they move soil, which becomes dirt because now it's originally out of place 
to whereas if we're going to use soil, we're using it for the properties in which God created it to be able to raise a sustainable life with it. If we didn't have soil, us as humans today would not exist. Oh, that is hilarious. I thought you were going to give kind of like a trite answer. One time I gave a talk, I got a standing ovation at the end of this talk. And the very first like question wasn't a question at all. It was a, I just want to clarify that it's soil, not dirt when I was talking about something to do with ag. And so I thought you were going to give like a trite answer, but it is true, right? Like people do push dirt around with their big bulldozer and, uh, and that does make it different. Can you move soil and have it be dirt and have it be then go back to being soil so they have in our part of the world called reclaimed ground to where the coal mines at one point in time stripped the top soil off they took and stored it and then they would mine the coal below it and then they're supposed to be able to put it back but after seeing several thousand acres of this and being across it it never comes back the same. We're always having to add different soil amendments to it to be able to try to get it back to the same production level it was once prior to it being moved. No kidding, because it seems like it's one of those things that's just like, oh, you know, there's some soil there or dirt there. You just move it. I put it in my my uh, my bed, plant my tomatoes in my raised bed garden, and everything's fine. Yeah, whenever I work with my my customers, we're always they're always talking. Well, I got to put the seed in the dirt. And I'm like, well, technically that's soil because you're you're it's never really been moved you know so we have a lot of fun with it that kind of they call it dirt we call it soil right it's a word that tries to elevate what it is of the importance of the factor and that really comes down from the fact in college i had a soils professor and she would get very frustrated with students use the word dirt in her class because dirt is something like i said that's been misplaced and soils is something that sustains life so there's two different aspects there. And so when you start talking about soil amendments and stuff, for somebody that doesn't understand anything at all about this, what does it take to grow a plant in soil? So there's really 17 essential elements that it takes for that crop to grow. And if you pull one of those away, that, that crop cannot sustain from life. So the big ones that we don't even supply from the soil standpoint is hydrogen, carbon, dioxide and oxygen those are the three main factors that you have to have to have a growing plant from there um, the elements that the soil can produce through its organic matter or in between its clay layers are the other factors that you have to have um, nitrogen phosphorus potassium which are the big three that a lot of people think of and consider whenever they're talking about growing crops right and that's what agriculture as a whole that's been their main focus but there's another you know, 12 elements that we need to talk about, nickel, cobalt, iron, copper, aluminum, manganese, um, things of that nature, these micronutrients, sulfur being a big aspect, especially as the coal power plants have used these scrubbers to reduce the amount of acid rain that gets leached off into the atmosphere. We're no longer getting the free sulfur that we got <laughs> prior to these scrubbers being put on. No kidding. So it used to be that we were getting that as a benefit, eh? The, the areas around the power plants would see their sulfur readings on these soil analysis 
be raised without having to make the application because of the amount of coal that was being burned. The sulfur was going out in the fumes and then it would get into the clouds. When rainfall, it would bring the bring the water and the sulfur down with it. And so they were getting it freely from that standpoint. But since the EPA is put on the, the scrubbers, which is where gypsum comes into play now, um, that sulfur is no longer going into the air. And so a lot of this early season cold, wet soils we're seeing with yellowing corn is not necessarily a nitrogen deficiency. It's actually a sulfur deficiency that's showing up because the two will mimic each other very similarly. Now, why do you know this in such fine grain detail? I've spent the last 10 to 15 years really studying and understanding how the soils function. Um, out of school, I actually started my master's degree at U of I, and I'm being from Southern Illinois. My thesis was sulfur in grass crops and how it would affect them or not. And so as we're going through this process, we knew in wheat that wheat was showing sulfur deficiencies post green up and that we were seeing a response not only to plant health but nitrogen uptake as we were adding sulfur to the crops and we were doing the same thing with corn as we were adding sulfur into the mix we were help utilizing the nitrogen use efficiency that that the synthetic nitrogen that a grower was putting on was greatly increased and so once I started getting into my thesis through U of I, um, it really become prevalent. The lower organic matter soils you have, the less sulfur releasing capacity the soil is going to give you naturally. And that supplemental sulfur it needs to be up there as an important factor as what the traditional phosphorus and potash or phosphorus and potassium um, is thought in the industry. And so you mentioned other things that seem like you know, metals you wouldn't necessarily need in soil, copper and, uh, you know, iron. Why do you need these things in soil? Because they're essential for that plant. Every element has something that happens inside that plant as a mechanism for it to sustain life. And if you pull that element out of there, then that plant no longer has the ability to function with the mechanism inside it that that element is using for. And so if we take that away, that plant can no longer survive. Um, but then why can people do aquaponics, right? I see all these things on, on, you know, YouTube or whatever, where it's just a bunch of water that they're growing there. Well, they're, they're giving the water fertilizers, right? They're feeding that water, a constant mix of nutrition that that plant's uptaking for it to do its processes of photosynthesis and, and sugar developmentation after that. And so when you're understanding these things, how do you know whether that needs more copper or more iron or zinc or... So most of the industry um, doesn't really focus on those those micronutrients or they're saying, hey, boron's a big thing that we're reading in the ag news right now. You know, as a salesperson, we need to be trying to push boron, right? Because it, it's something that we think that we're lacking in. Um Several years ago, zinc, right? Zinc was a big one that they knew corn needed to have as an uptake to be able to help establish the number of kernels that's on that ear. And so zinc and furrow or mixed with the phosphorus was a, was a big component that they were using several years ago. And it seems like every few years, a new element comes up, right? And then there's new silver bullet product mentalities that can actually go out to 
to try to sell these to get the levels up, but they'll use soil test. And on ours particularly, we know that there's 17 properties that are on that report and there's a hierarchy of important, um, importance from top to bottom um, that we need to look at these things. And so if we can create a healthy soil, most of the time the soils are going to to feed the plant what it needs. And then as the plants die and decay, that carbon turns back into nutrients. And so really you have a nutrient cycle um, that happens once the once you raise a crop, it dies and decays. And I'm not necessarily talking about the material that's left above ground, but the material that's below ground that correlates a lot back into the carbon that's put back in that forms organic matter in the future. So you have a company called Element Ag. Correct. So you're one of these guys that like, I'll come out and test your soil. Is there always something wrong with somebody's soil? You know, there's always something that we can focus on. Um, with the hierarchy, there's really five main factors that we're going to look at. And, and understanding how to read that report in this manner is kind of proprietary. There's a few companies out there that understand it. But traditionally, what you get back is ph p and k right maybe organic matter so really there's only three or four things that a lot of people are used to seeing because that's what the industry focuses on but when we give our reports back we want to make sure that we observe all 17 properties and the interrelationship workings between those to know what state of soil health that we have um ph being the big one right if you're if your ph is off then we understand that different minerals inside the soil have the capability to either being suppressed because pH is too high or too low, or they flourish, which means there's an abundance of them that's released into the soil because the pH is too high or too low. And so having that ideal or optimum range for pH is crucial. The whole industry is not going to debate that, right? You want to see soils between 6.2 and 6.8 for most row crop operations. And so that's that optimum range. And whenever we get pHs that are closer to that 6.8, you're not just going to arbitrarily go out there and throw more lime on the field because you know the detrimental effects that it has of getting pHs too high. P and K should be no different. Um, that whenever we're looking at the soil test value, there's optimum levels that each one of these components needs or elements needs to be in. And if we can find that proper balance, we know we're creating a good soil health. And based off of some research that was done where it, they actually took a soil sample and made the soil inert, right? So they took all the extractions, stronger and stronger acids and said, hey, you know, if you take that soil sample at six and two thirds inches and you create that plow layer, um, what's that two million pounds comprised of? And believe it or not, there's in a silty loam soil, there's 5,200 pounds of phosphorus and there's somewhere in the midst of 35 to 40,000 pounds of potassium of that 2 million pounds. But yet when we look at the numbers on a soil test, they're much, much more minute than that because there's actually three pools of nutrition that the soil actually functions with of. You have this big pool that's in the mineral form. That's like the rock in your driveway. You have a smaller form, which is the fixed or liable pool that has to be mineralized then to go to the smallest pool, which is the um, solution nutrition pool. And so when we actually do a soil test, we're, we're 
cutting away at the solution nutrition plus a little bit of what is going to be easily be pulled off of that fixed pool through the mineralization process is what we're actually testing for in our lab. And so we know that if we have in those optimum ranges, that that plant has what it needs for that year to be able to survive and grow. And that there's an abundance of it coming from the background as we grow things with the robust rooting structure, mineralization actually takes place the roots die and decay and the microbes die and decay and then they replenish that mineral pool for future reuse um, is how the soils will actually function with that. So these all appear to be like uh, giant network effects, right? Where like you pull on one string and it like impacts all the other strings. How, how strong of a grasp do we have on like how soil actually works? That's a great question. Um, for those that don't know, very little. Um, I like to think myself, I've taken a lot of time and a lot of effort and I've got a network of people behind me that have taught me a lot. But even then, you, you're talking about several, several thousands or if not millions of different microbial populations that are inside the soil that they're just now starting to understand that I do believe in the next 20 years, you're going to see advancements and fertilizer recommendations and in agriculture based off of grasping and understanding what these microbes actually do in their functioning properties. You know, they understand now that if you're talking about phosphorus, there's a whole microbial population that deals just in phosphorus. If you're talking about potassium, there's a whole microbial population that deals with just with potassium. If you're talking about molybdenum, there's a whole microbial population that deals just with molybdenum. But what in the world is that? What's that? Molybdenum. Molybdenum. It's it's an element that has that's in the soil that this the plants need to be able to function, right? And so, if you would take molybdenum, for instance, Vance, out of the equation, the corn plant would not survive, right? But yet, very rarely, unless you're working with some intense management people, are they ever going to add molybdenum into their to their fertility or their nutrient program, the guys that are traditional agriculture are definitely not, not having anything like that. So how does soil testing work in today's day and age? Because if I, you know, if, if you don't know anything about farms, you think like, oh, you just walk out on a farm. I'm going to take a little bit of soil and go back and test it. But it turns out like if you're walking across a field, the soil on one part of the field could be different than five yards later, let alone, yep. you know, a half a mile down that row. So in the mid-90s, GPS technology came about. And so they thought that if we could take and put grids or squares onto these fields, and that's how we sampled it, right, that we could we could take the lower end of things and get it all raised up to where it needed to be or to the higher end to where the, the field was uniformed. But that's not necessarily how soils function, you know, I've got dark hair, green eyes. You've got dark hair, blue eyes. Our eyes are going to act differently to the sunlight. You know, yours are more sensitive than mine. If a brown-eyed person was in the room, theirs are less sensitive than what ours are. And so what we want to do is we want to take the different soil types, which is just what you were describing, and we want to understand the chemistry and the characteristics in which those soil types actually function in. And so we've got the software and the data now that we can pull in either NRCS soil type maps 
or Varus data or multi-year yield information to create management zones inside these fields. So as we're either doing it by yield or by soil type, which is the chemistry aspect of it, um, we can actually grid inside those soil types now to make management zones based off the chemistry of what the soil or the topography of what the soil offers in that field. How big are those grids? Usually they're going to go from one to two and a half to three acres. Um, we're not going to go any smaller than one, but we're not going to manage anything larger than three. Um, so anywhere in between those is kind of what we kind of what we run with. And when somebody has their field sampled right now, and let's say they haven't gotten it, I don't know, how often do people sample their fields normally? Traditional industries about every, once every four years. Every four years. So yeah. we're, we're more frequent than that um, just because we want to make sure the changes that need to be made are being made and they're following suit with what our recommendations are. But traditional is about every four years. And so how much changes between... Uh, 2018 and 2022? A lot can if you're adding the right amendments. Um, so it, it, it seems today that agriculture as a whole, using lime, for instance, we went through a period 60, 70 years ago where the lime was very coarse. It was like road chat. It's taken a long time to break down in the soil and to adjust the pH. Then we went to a period where they started pulverizing it more and, and sieving it out more to get the fines to where we could have a faster reaction time to making a liming application to where now we're, we're migrating back more towards that coarse material. Um, I don't know why, but the stuff that we're getting is, is a lot bigger. It's starting to resemble that road chat again. And so what we're not wanting to do is make an application today and then say, hey, two years from now, we need to know what that liming adjustment was, right? Because if we're just going to go out and do it again in four years, if it hasn't adjusted, we need to figure out why it hasn't and what's the length of time it's taking to break this down. But the big one being gypsum applications. Um, you can see an immediate effect as you apply gypsum to the field. What is gypsum? So it's a calcium sulfate. So that material we talked about at the power plants with the scrubbers, um, it, it's what a coal-fired power plant will use to, to sift out the sulfur. So then there's a precipitate that falls to the ground and it makes calcium sulfate basically is what it is. And so for a long time, the government didn't want or maybe the EPA, didn't want farmers using it for their fields because they thought it'd have a negative environmental impact that it wasn't safe to use. Um, <clears throat> the University of Purdue, Dr. Daryl Norton, actually ran the erosion control lab there, who's a part of the network that I am associated with, got that style of gypsum, coal plant gypsum, available use for agriculture purposes to where they know that it increased water infiltration rate, we're getting available sulfur to the field, and that the calcium content actually drives oxygen into the soil, which can create porosity at that time. So it's got the soil health properties of it to where if we're looking at that report, and there's a few key items that we're going to look at, um, that if they're elevated, we need to make this gypsum application to draw those elements down. That way we can take and have a better soil health. 
So you think that uh, soil, it's been around for, you know, millions of years. Why is it that we need to like take care of it or add things to it or take things away? Because that's what agriculture's told them, right? Agriculture has told them that if you don't apply these materials, that the soil would not give you the crop that you're looking for. When in reality, if they can focus on soil health and the aspects of it, we can reduce the amount of synthetic inputs that are needed by focusing on good air-water balance, good calcium-magnesium ratios, um, getting the soil more flocculated, more porosity in it, compared to just tillage, 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 compaction, um, and reducing the amount of water infiltration rate that we have. That's So I was expecting you to say like, oh, well, as we've added more crops or we've done more row crops, we've taken more off of there, so we have to add more back in. <clears throat> but you're saying... That's the like, traditional way of thinking. That you're almost proposing like exercise as health as opposed to like taking more pills. Correct. Okay. Without a doubt. So the way that we view our network of people is that if you go to the doctor, right, they're going to give you a, they're going to draw blood. That blood panel is going to kind of determine your soil health. They're going to take your temperature and your blood pressure as well. Well, whenever we're looking at our soil report, we view it as the soil's blood panel. There, there's something that's the temperature of the soil. There's something that the blood pressure of the soil is on that report. And then the other factors that we want to see in optimum ranges, right? When you look at your blood, your doctor looks at your blood panel, there's an optimum range for everything that's on that report. They don't want it too high and they don't want it too low. Optimum range. If your blood pressure is fine or your cholesterol is fine, they're not going to recommend you take blood pressure or cholesterol medicine. But they say, hey, if you drop 10 pounds, maybe we don't have to put you on this medicine, right? So there's your exercise, that analogy that if we can just get the soil to exercise for us, and cropping rotations have a lot to do with it. The more fibrous rooting structures, corn, wheat, cover crops, manures, things like that, that we're, we're constantly putting to a field, the more carbon we're replacing in the soil. Um, if a guy is going to run consistent beans, soybean after soybean after soybean crop, it doesn't have the carbon return to the soil like those fibrous rooting structures have from a grass crop. So that's where the soil becomes complacent or stagnant. Um, it doesn't have that interaction with that rooting interface and the microbial population to get nutrients to flow the way that the way that they want to. I guess I didn't realize people did soy on soy. I mean, I know corn on <laughs> corn because you can get, you know, during those good years, you could you could build a legacy it, off of a couple good years of corn. In, in a poor soil conditions, there's a lot of people that will run several soybean on soybean years, um, especially the further south you get into the non-irrigated piece of the world with low organic matters. You know, it doesn't have a lot of water holding capacity. They, they say it's not good corn ground, so they'll constantly raise beans um, in those fields. I was always under the impression the reason people pl planted beans mostly was to get the nitrogen put back into the soil because they want those those nodules. Yeah, there, there's some component to that, um, but it's not as big of an impact as what was let has been led on. Oh, tell me more <laughs> about this. 
So there's a lot of new research that's actually come out that, yes, you do get the nodules that, that create and fix the nitrogen, but it's not to the extent of having the leftover nitrogen there for the corn crop for the following year. So you don't, you don't get this big high input flush of nitrogen that's released at the proper time for that corn crop. But with that being said is, is that there's things that you can do with that corn crop to increase the nitrogen use efficiency of the synthetic material that you're putting down with timing and placement, right? Um, there, and that's a whole different aspect of, of what we do besides just the soil lab. What do you mean? So we work with a company that f founded really the timing and placement of nutrition for, for crops. So if you think of planter attachments and setups, you know, a lot of times when people go to the field, the plan, the planters are bare. It's just a thing that implements that puts the seed in the ground. They broadcast a dry fertilizer, maybe variable rated if they're a little bit more advanced. And a lot of them maybe pre-plant their anhydrous, for instance. But as technology has come along with the attachments on equipment, now you've got the ability to put something in furrow, right? So right with that seed. Meaning if you're, 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 you're cutting open the soil so that way you can drop the seed in. And right as you're doing that, you're also putting in a bead of a fertilizer or pesticide. Yep, a, okay. bead, a bead of fertilizer. That's right. We call it the starter grower finisher mentality. You know, everything's got a life cycle that that's used. Humans, plants, um, animals, everything has a life cycle. And so when that corn plant or bean plant or wheat plant that or the main crops that we work with are young, we want to make sure it has the proper nutrition it needs for early root growth and vegetative development. And so that's where that band of inferno nutrition comes into play. Then if you think about the next phase, which is the growing phase, or we call the teenage years of a corn plant to where it gets, say, V5 to V6 to rapid growing phase to VT, it needs a different set of nutrition. Well, if we take that same planter and at the time of planting, we banned nitrogen and sulfur and maybe a little bit of P and K if the soils are, are calling for it and a band, you get a much higher use efficiency rate out of that band than you do a broadcast application. And so that as that rooting structure grows out to that band, whenever it goes into wrapping growing phase, it's going to tap into that band now and say, hey, I've got the nutrition I need not to delay in growth. I can take off growing and I'm not going to miss a bad day, right? Because a lot in a lot of a lot of fields today, they're planting 32, 34, 36,000 population or corn plants per acre. So what our goal is as stewards is to make sure that all 32, 34, 36,000 plants have the same access to nutrition in furrow and next to the row, fence row to fence row, edge of the field to edge of the field. If we're just broadcasting it or we're using pre-plant anhydrous, then we're, we're just allowing the plant to search for whatever it is that it wants to find. Maybe it finds it, maybe it doesn't. And then that's where you get a lot of variability out in the field. Um, this year, you saw a lot of those anhydrous streaks because the soil was cool and wet. Then hydrous didn't really break down and move very much. 
Um, so you see these yellow, dark green streaks through the fields. Yeah, so for somebody that's not anything to do with farming, occasionally you'll see a tractor out with a big tank, yep. and they're going out and they're spraying it. And you imagine like, oh, this is just like when I go put Roundup on my bricks, everywhere I hit it, you know, the the thing is just gone. But nitrogen is like a very unusual chemical in this fact that it moves around, it can hold in place, it can even be bound to the soil and then not released when the plants need it. So how in the world do you get your arms around what that nitrogen is going to do? Depending upon the form in which you're applying it goes through that nitrogen processing, right? So a lot of people that have put ammonia on, um, which would be that NH3 that they're talking about in those big white tanks, it's going to transform to ammonium, which is NH4, and then it's going to convert to nitrate nitrogen as it breaks down then to nitrite, which is either leached or, or volatilized out through, through the air. So um, depending upon the form in which you guys applying it in, it, it does different things inside the soil. So... A long time ago, I remember somebody told me that uh, when lightning and thunder happens, that, that the lightning actually is scattering nitrogen all over the soil. Is Small this right? amounts. Small amounts, but not, not enough to make a difference? Mm-mm. Not necessarily, no. Because in snowfall, um, when snow falls, it actually picks up some of the nitrogen out of the soil, or out of the air, excuse me, and, and brings it to the ground. But it's not enough to really sustain sustain much. Really, it, it all has to do with everything below ground. Um, the rooting structures, the interaction with those microbes and those roots is really the key component of how that plant survives, that rhizosphere area. And so it, it's such a complex, such a complex event that happens that it really is hard unless you live and breathe it to really grasp your arms around it and be able to, to understand what, what happens. Oh yeah. I mean, I, uh, I really am fascinated by trees, right? So I'm always planting them and I'm always listening to different things about trees. And somebody pointed out to me one time, like, you know, that like, we don't actually understand exactly how a tree moves water all the way from the roots way up, like in a giant Oak, like a hundred feet up in the air, because if you had a straw going that far, it doesn't matter what kind of pump you pull on that straw. Like you, you, you can't pull water that far up. Roots are wild, man. They are. What do you know about roots that you think is a fascinating thing that most people don't know? That when we talk about carbon and carbon placement back into the soil, that the rooting structure is what the majority of the carbon gets put back in. Most people think that it's the fodder that's left on top. Yeah, all the all the all, corn stalks and all that stuff. The, what do you call it? The residue. The yeah. residue, right? Most people think that that's where all the carbon gets put back into the soil, but that's actually called particle or organic matter. It has a really high lignin content, real high carbon to nitrogen ratio to where it takes a lot of time for that to break down. But if you're looking below ground, and it's called MAOM, mineral-associated organic matter, which is the dying, decaying microbes, which is called detris, and the rooting structures themselves, which actually puts back about 80% of the carbon that's returned to the soil. 
And so it's not necessary. The bigger rooting structures we can create, the more we're putting back into the soil. So a 250 bushel corn crop has to have a bigger rooting structure than a 150 bushel corn crop. But yet they say we pulled off more grain, right? Well, in reality, we're actually creating more soil to root surface area to where we're putting back more nutrition than what we take off from a field with a bigger crop than what we do with a smaller crop because the 150 bushels doesn't have the biggest rooting structure. It's usually got a smaller rooting structure, smaller stock, smaller ear, right? To where if you got a 250 bushel crop, you got a large rooting structure, a large stock, and a large ear to be able to do that. And when you're describing this, I guess my initial conception is that the roots are built from the materials that are in the ground that the plant is converting, but is it actually that it's grabbing these materials out of the air and putting them into the ground? The rooting structures themselves have an interaction with the soil. It's the photosynthesis process whenever the plant is taking that sunlight energy and creating photosynthate the majority of that is not actually put through to the green tissue. It's put through the rooting structures to feed the microbes to actually be able to allow mineralization to take place. And so the plants have to have calcium inside the soil for the new rooting structures to continue to grow. So if you take away the calcium and you have poor soil health and compacted soils, you have a much smaller rooting structure compared to if you have a nice calcium-based soil, a lot of porosity, not a lot of compaction, right? It's that garden soil or that potting soil that we're talking about that allows the roots to constantly move forward and grow. So if you take away the calcium out of the soil, um, you're going to take away life out of the plant. Wow. And when you think about the root health that's going on underneath the the ground, I mean, like, this may be something farmers are really familiar with, but I know virtually nothing at all about this. So take a corn plant. How deep are those root structures growing? Like, if I look at a, you know, six or seven foot tall corn, how deep is that? Are the roots underneath it? Depending upon the soil environment below, um, we've done root pits in South Central Illinois where we, we found the rooting structures six, seven feet deep. Um, now, that's not the mass majority of them, you know, or probably within the top 24 inches, but they're definitely sending rooting structures, live rooting structures down deep into that profile um, to, find, to find nutrients and to find water. So when you talk about the nutrients and the and the water that they're grabbing, you know, I always, my daughter is like, you know, talking about plants growing. She's two, right? So this is very rudimentary. And I discover very quickly that I actually don't have, not, not a fifth grade level of understanding about this. Like I don't have a two-year-old understanding of this because the materials that the plant is growing from, is it predominantly pulling those materials out of the soil? Or is it grabbing it from the air? I mean, I know that the both. energy, both. Both. So tell me more. So I think, you know, we kind of just touched over it. And you mentioned the tree thing earlier. And so when we're talking to, to potential clients or our clients and we're going over their soil book with them like a doctor would go over their, their blood report with you, 
um, we always look out the window and we say, what do you see out there? Well, we see the tree line, right? That's the biggest living plant that they have on their farms, but yet they don't back a fertilizer truck up to the tree line every year and put P and K on there. But yet that tree goes through a life cycle. It puts on another ring. You can see all the green tissue that it's put out this year. And in fall, the leaves will change colors. They'll fall off because that, that cycle has happened. But next year, springtime will happen. The trees will bloom. The leaves will come. And, and then they continue that cycle, right? That's what we're talking about. So that tree that you gave that example to earlier is exactly what we're talking about as the light hits the sun or the light hits the leaves and that photosynthesis process happens and it's sending that energy through the through the xylem and phloem down to the rooting structures to actually create root exudates to feed the microbes to allow the microbes to mineralize the nutrient that they need to mineralize to make available to that plant so the plant can uptake that nutrient send it back up through the, the xylem and phloem to the green leaf tissue to create a new leaf, to create a new trifoliate on beans. And then, and then that trifoliate or leaf takes on sunlight, produces photosynthate, sends it back down through the rooting structure. And this process just continuously happens. So the way I hear you describing things is fascinating, by the way, like, are, are what you're saying, is it heterodox? Is it just a little different than what everybody else is? Or are you saying mostly what most plant nutrition, soil health people are saying? If you specialize in the soils and plant nutrition and have an understanding of it, we all talk the same. If you're coming from a person, and I don't want to pick on individuals in the industry, that don't have the understanding because you don't know what you don't know, they, they don't understand that the, how the soils really function, right? They're, they're looking at the agronomy handbooks. They're looking at the university research that says, you know, if your soil test is this, you have to add this to build it up. Then we need to make sure we're adding maintenance. And then you have to make sure you add some on for crop removal, when that has been debunked. So if you don't know what you don't know, right, you've, you've only been taught traditional ways, then that's what they go to the marketplace and that's what, we're, that's what we challenge. Um, so if you're an agronomist sitting out in their truck right now about ready to go scout somebody's field and you're like hearing you talk about it, they're saying, what do you, what do you mean? And you're not trained in this capacity and you're on traditional side of stuff, they may not know. So um, tell me about the the world of, of soil science then. Are you giving advice that's different than what somebody's agronomist does? And does that create <laughs> conflict? We are. Um, and I think it's important to understand where I come from, from this component. So after school, um, my life's always been science, right? In college, I was pre-med, let's say. And, and whenever I was getting ready to graduate, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. I went through several clinical hours and realized I didn't want to necessarily interact with humans and the capacity of what those people do. Kudos to them. We have to have them in the world, right? So I wanted to pivot and go a different direction, but I knew I wanted to stay in the sciences. So I went into agriculture. 
um, not coming from it per se. It's really was kind of eye opening to learn from from a different perspective of always questioning why are we doing it the way that we're doing it, right? And so out of school, I actually went and worked for a co-op for a brief stint, um, constantly questioned what I was doing on a daily basis. Why are we feeding these plants broadcast material after I'm walking behind a spreader truck and counting, well, there's a pellet, there's a pellet, there's a pellet. Well, how is that pellet ever going to get over to that corn plant? Because it's the closest one if we know phosphorus doesn't move inside the soil profile, right? So it seemed like it was a real inefficient way to try to feed a crop. So I had this idea that I wanted to come up with a way to, to feed crop nutrition better. Might I add, not coming from agriculture, didn't have a clue that there was companies already doing this, that there were planter attachments that guys could already put on the planters because we're talking 2010 timeframe whenever I graduated. Um, so while at the co-op, I just I started their precision ag program. We started variable rating based off the information that I had. Well, there was a gentleman that actually came into the office where I was working, and I'm in the corner of the room working on mapping to, to write recommendations for customers, and he's talking to my boss at the time about this timing and placement of nutrients and how the soil is more than just dirt and that we, if we treat it with respect, that it'll give back to us in a capacity that we don't necessarily understand and that the company that he was working for you know, this is going on 15 years ago now, and they're still in business today and have been in business 25 years prior to that, that if if we can treat the soil the way that they were understanding it at the time, <clears throat> that there is a better way for nutrient management, right? In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is exactly what we need to be doing because this makes sense. This is common sense at that point in time. And my boss is like, no, it's not what we're going to do. Well, I knew if I wanted to get out of this and change the way agriculture was done in our area, that I needed a platform in which to do so. But why would he have said, no, we're not going to do it this way? Because he's very traditional, right? You got to remember, you got the agronomy handbook that was wrote in the 60s that has made people successful for several years um, that they're following these recommendations and, and guys are making money. They're doing the things that they need to do. They're, they're successful at that point in time. So why rock the boat? Why change something when this has been tradition, but yet does it make sense, right? Is there a better way to find efficiency? And so whenever I, uh, I broke away from that first job, I decided I was going to start the soil lab. A friend of mine at that time was a, a teacher. He had went to school for that, but had the same the same science mind background that I did. And I knew I needed a lab director um, for whenever I started the soil lab. So he was a childhood friend of mine. And whenever we I approached him about it, he was like, hey, let's make a run at this. We'll either sink or swim, right? And so right out the gate, um, we were learning things. We were getting the lab set up. We had picked up several local ag retailers at the time that we were doing business with. We were trading dollars, right? I was working with their customer base. Well, a few years And into what were it, you selling when you first start? You say, I'm going to... I wasn't selling them anything. We were just offering them the service of going out and pulling their soils, running through our lab, writing the recommendations for them to put in their spreader trucks to be able to go out 
and and make the applications to the fields. Okay. Um, we were kind of working with a few of their customers, but that's what most soil labs are. They're a third party, hands off. Don't necessarily work with with individual growers where they will just interpret the results or they'll do the analysis and give the results to somebody else, a crop consultant, um, an ag retailer. Then they'll interpret the results and and tell the grower what they need to do, which excuse me tends to be the traditional way of thinking, right? Well, you did 150 of dap and potash each last year and you raised good crops. You just want to do that again this year? Well, you know, prices of P and K are down a little bit and corn prices are up. Why don't we just go ahead and do 200 and 200 this year, Mr. Grower? That way we can take and make sure that we're not short in case it's another good crop. Yeah, okay, let's do that, right? Because the adage is any anytime you're under on the amount of fertilizer that you put, you're leaving it, money on the table. It's going to be a limiting factor or the soil is a bank and it has the capability to hold what you put on it for, for future purposes, which isn't necessarily always accurate either. Um, so a few years into having the lab and working with these ag retailers, our algorithms, as I'm learning about the soil health, I didn't know all this stuff coming out. It took me several years to learn my craft. As we're learning how soil health actually works and soils actually function, our algorithms were starting to change. And the amount of material that we we're applying to the fields are actually starting to reduce. And we're not meeting the ag retailer's business model at that point in time. And so they started to retract on business um, for, for you're putting a lot of jargon in here. What you're saying is you were looking at these and you're saying, actually this year, we don't need to put on as much as we put on last year. We're going to bring that down. And if you do that for a little while, all of a sudden the retailer who's coming to you as a third party to say, Hey, give us the soil tests. Cause we're going to use these to bolster why we're selling what we're selling. Now, all of a sudden, if they use your tests, they're selling less, uh, correct. N P and K. Correct. And so that they started to retract and they tried, they started pulling back, um, from having us be there. What lab. are those conversations like? How do they even come and tell you that? Well, they didn't, we just didn't get the, we didn't get the phone calls. Um, they just stopped sending us saying, Hey, here's, you know, 500 acres here to pull, or here's 500 acres there to pull. So at that time, um, a few years into it, the same gentleman walks back through the lab doors and he's like, Hey Parker, I got this idea that if we can take your understanding of soils and we can marry it with nutrient management and we go grower direct that that we can do this and and we can do it so i hired him on as business development because i understood the science but i didn't understand messaging right i, I was still barely 30 years old at this time you don't and, like people or you didn't want to go out and talk uh, with them like i that. didn't necessarily right it wasn't my <laughs> cup of tea because once again i didn't come from agriculture and so hire him on business development was the best thing that i ever did because he allowed it allowed me to see how he interacted with people from a cold call standpoint, let's say, and then transition over to myself to explain the science of it all. And so being able to take the, the intense information that we have and then transfer it over to a way that a guy can understand it and make it usable on his operation is, is what's crucial. And so that's what we do now. Um, we go out and wrote, work grower direct. I still have a few ag retail 
clients, but they understand what we're, the, the goal is for the recommendations. They're on board with it. And they're looking at different ways to adjust their business model to to service their customers, right? Because they everybody would benefit if it's uh, not, hey, I'm going to benefit by selling you more of this product, but if I sell you the right amount of this product. The, the right amount of product. And then looking at different avenues for their business. So this was probably five years ago that we went Grower Direct. Um, and it was the best thing that we ever did because we were at a point, you know, we, we had a serious come to Jesus meeting. We were okay. Our business is, is regressing. We're, we're going backwards. What are we going to do to pivot, to change, to make sure that this thing continues to grow and to thrive and going out, getting off our butts, which is what most labs do. They just sit back, twiddle their thumbs, wait for the busy season to happen and take our message of soil health and nutrient management to these customers that we could make a sustainable business that would have the initial goal in mind that I wanted to, to change the way agriculture was done in our area, to make things much more efficient, to put more money back in guys' pockets, which is what we do for all of our customers and why we've been so successful in the short amount of time that we've actually changed from one thing to the other. So what type of farmer is willing to pay for somebody to come out and test their soils? All of them should be. Um, is it expensive? It depends, right? So if you're going off of price, you pay for what you get. So if you're, <laughs> it, right? If you're, if you're wanting just organic matter, pH, P and K, it's pretty cheap to do that, but is that guy reading his right reports? You know, if if you're wanting all 17 properties and somebody to sit down and go over a two-hour consultation with you and actually explain each page of that book and the science behind it and why you're doing the things that you're doing and what they're recommending, it might be a little more costly. But I can tell you the guys that work with us, you know, at the beginning, if they don't know who we are, there's some skepticism. But once they understand it and once they get a year or two under their belt, because um, these operations are all big enough now, they all look at things, they all are searching. We can pique enough interest to, to get them to give us some of their tougher acres that, that just doesn't make sense on why they're not producing. And we can help them turn those fields around to where they are not as far as behind and that's where we gain our trust. And so tell me like, I mean, not maybe all farmers should do this, but which farmers are doing this? The ones that are a little more progressive. Um, I kind of call it the granddad, dad, son mentality. You know, if the granddad's very traditional and he's still calling all the shots on the operation. That operation's probably not for us right now. If if he's kind of if the granddad's there, but the dad who's now in his sixties, let's say, is there and he's calling the shots, he's seen some changes and been a little bit more progressive, understands that there's more to than just traditional, then that guy's pretty much on board. Um, he'll give us a few acres to take a look at. If you've got the son that's in his 30s, right, we've been, we were raised with cell phones in our hands, computer laptops with emails, all the technology 
um, that we have, those guys are more adaptive. They're thinking outside the box. How can I become more efficient with what I've got to help me grow my business down the road? And we come in as a team. Never, never do we come in by ourselves. I usually have a business development guy, myself, the biologist, a territory manager, um, supporting roles from some, some, from some aspect because today agriculture is huge business, right? All of them are millionaires in their own in their own right because of the asset basis that they Yeah, it might have. not be liquid millionaires. It might not be liquid millionaires, but they're all millionaires based off of their assets that they have. So it's huge business. You know, there's very few and they're still needed small family operations that are three, four, five hundred acres in my area, right? A lot of them are fifteen hundred, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, ten thousand, twenty-five thousand acre farmers or growers that are trying to find efficiencies around every corner that they can because of the size of the operation that they are. You know, when we sit down and look at God's book and we're like, Mr. Grower, this is a million dollar conversation. You follow our recommendations compared to what you're traditionally doing. You're talking a million dollars in one year. Over how many acres is that conversation a million dollars? That, at, at, where fertilizer prices were at last year, that's at about ten to 11,000 acre grower. And so, okay, well, that's you're talking about the top, you know, 1% at 10,000 acres. Have, we have several of those in our part of the world. You know, southern Illinois, maybe south central Illinois, they have several large operations um, that they're – that are working in the area. You know, the further north you get, the smaller the operations seem to be. You do have some large entities, but you have a lot of those 1,500 to 2,000 acre growers. And it's a million dollar conversation because you could cut down the amount they're spending on on certain chemistries and you could bring up the value of the amount of crop that they're growing? It's really just on the first part of it. So really, if you go back to what I said earlier on the optimum levels and we focus on that and not traditional, hey, I got to put on 200 pounds of DAP and potash every year and we look at those soil tests and say, hey, you're in optimum ranges. Which philosophy are you going to believe here, right? Well, most people's big concern is, well, I can do that for a year or two, right? But then I'm going to deplete my soils and I have to put a bunch back on. But then it goes back to, well, are you focusing on soil health with the use of gypsum, air water management, finding the right ratios on the soil test? And then it goes back to the composition of soils that we talked about prior to where you've got 5,200 pounds and 35,000 pounds of phosphorus and potassium in every six and two thirds inches or acre plow layer. But that acre plow layer doesn't stop at one or two or three or four, right? It can continues to go down until you get to bedrock. So now let's say it's two feet deep. Well, now you've got four times that amount. So now you're talking over 10,000 pounds of phosphorus in that rooting zone that goes down to six feet. And now you've got over 120,000 pounds of potassium in that rooting zone. So let me see if I understand. You're saying, I'm going to farmers and I'm telling them, hold up. I know this practice that you guys have had for decades 
is to go out and put nitrogen on the soil every year because if you don't... Nitrogen's a different component. Okay. We're, I'm really talking more about phosphorus and potassium, bath okay. and potash. Uh, P and K. But we can help with fine-tuning nitrogen use efficiencies based upon the way that we implement it. Okay, so you're saying... Um, we recommend that instead of you going out and putting this potash that you're doing every year, or every few years that you're putting a lot of it on there. I don't, I have no idea what this stuff costs. I know we can really only get it from Canada right now, but right now you're probably prices have come down. Um, but in the height of last fall, when people were buying it, it was almost $700 a ton. And how many tons is somebody? Well, putting a lot out of there? people are putting on 200 pounds per acre. So you're talking 35, what would that be? Well, it's a significant amount of money. So thousands per acre is what you're saying. Well, so uh, on 10 acres, it would be 700 pounds. So you're talking $70 an acre. Okay. Yeah. And so then you're saying if you don't put that on, don't worry because those roots are going to grow deeper. They're going to go get what they need and just hold off. Don't put that on there. And by the way, when you do that, the root structure is going to be bigger and then you're going to be absorbing more carbon. You're going to have the the titration that you talked about or being able to pull the, the soil out so water gets in there deeper. So by not doing this practice that is standard, uh, you're going to make a big change to your field for the better. Correct. Based off of the soil reports that we get back from our lab. If the reports come and they're in that low range, right, non-optimum, and they're on the low side, we're going to make the recommendation to make the application. But it goes back to the blood pressure and cholesterol, right? Potassium and phosphorus is not number one and two on the hierarchy of importance. It's down the chain. I'm not going to give it because it's kind of proprietary information and we just don't want a lot of people understanding that. But if we can have the first four in line and then you've got phosphorus and potassium, if the first four are out of whack, most likely your phosphorus and potassium is out of whack. But if you can get the first four in line, then you've got good soil health, water permeability, oxygen driving into the soil. Then those pools of nutrition that I described earlier comes into function a lot faster to constantly release nutrition to the soil. And if you're creating those bigger roots, you're replenishing that pool of mineral nutrition. So it's a constant cycle as it goes around. So your <clears throat> biggest, strongest, smartest critic is listening to you right now. What is their, what is their criticism back to you about, about, you know, the way you, your philosophy. That we're here. always going to mine the soil. That, that if we don't put it on, maybe not year one, maybe not year two, but if we don't put the P and K on, not nitrogen because we have to have that for a corn crop. We can be more efficient than what we are if guys aren't doing the things that we ask them to do. But really it's the P and K um, and that you're going to mine your soils. But it goes back to not knowing what you don't know, right? We can get into a lot more depth of information. Like I said, some of the stuff's proprietary and I don't necessarily want to divulge that to let it be used against me from a competitive purpose. But I've got customers that have been with me for over 10 years that have reduced their P&K inputs by 80% every year as long as they're focusing on soil health and making the amendments that I ask them to make. 
they're raising better crops every year, year after year after year. Their soils are becoming more forgiving and healthier. And we just went through a drought, right? The last four weeks, we haven't had much rain in our area. Well, yesterday or Sunday, we got three-tenths in some areas. Some areas got a half an inch. Would you rather have 80% of what the rainfall you got go into the soil profile and only 20% run off to the ditch? Or would you rather have 30% get into the profile and 70% run off to the ditch, right? Coming out of this droughty time frame. That's what soil health does, right? If we can fun- focus on the properties that we know drives water and oxygen into the soil for that air-water balance, then we know we've got better results whenever it comes to a rainfall event out of a stressful period of time. So speaking of uh, water running off, one of my like pet theories out there in the world is that uh, the amount of pattern tiling that we've done to our um, ground is we're going to look back on this and think that it had a lot more negative drawbacks than what we what we originally thought. How does that idea strike you? You know, we don't have a lot of pattern tiling in our part of the world. Um, we are branching out. We're getting clients in Iowa and Wisconsin and Kentucky, Indiana, Missouri. Um, so we're, we're branching out in, in quite a big way just in my network itself. So we're seeing it more and more. And I think if done improperly and people aren't using more of the sustainable practices of agriculture that they 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 will have some of that right like fall, I mean, how like could fall, you not? there's like, so much water coming off of those fields so much faster than they ever did and i say like okay you get into the fields two weeks earlier i understand why you would want that but there the, this cannot be without cost this but it all has to do with timing and practices prior to that right so if i'm putting on fall applied anhydrous and i have a, a abnormal warm wet winter then the likelihood of me leaching out nitrogen through those tile lines greatly increases right phosphorus isn't going to move that much in the soil it's more of an erosion base control so your hills and places like that where you can reduce the amount of erosion is going to keep phosphorus from getting into the streams potassium it lives in and out of the clay layers so really the soil is going to absorb it and release it with with moisture as it kind of goes but you know the big thing with 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 tiling is the nitrogen component of it right and so that's where if guys are have that pattern tile and they need to be focusing on the soil quality and the timing of nitrogen applications to, to try to reduce the amount of runoff that's coming through those tile lines um, as those big rain events happen and as soils warm up and they're trying to push the envelope. Um, it makes it just makes more sense to try to to give it to the plant the closest you can go, you know, because right now I think the industry standards one point one or one pound of n per bushel produced right so if you want 200 bushel of corn a guy needs to put on 200 pounds of n to do so well if he if he migrates over and does the timing and placement of nutrients we can get down to six maybe seven tenths of a unit maybe even lower with guys that are focusing on soil health of a unit of n per bushel produced so instead of saying i need a hundred 
or I need 200 pounds of N to do 200 bushels. I may only need 140 pounds of nitrogen to raise 200 bushel corn, right? <clears throat> Plus the, the organic matter, you know, the more organic matter you have, the more nitrogen releasing power those those soils have. So there's a lot of instances where guys will put on 200 pounds, but they'll raise 250 bushel corn, right? Well, where's it where's it coming from? It's coming from the soil and the nitro the natural release of nitrogen through the organic matter. So, so you're reading uh, one of these blood panels, these soil tests, and uh, you know if I'm going to my doctor, there's going to be some stuff he's going to tell me that I don't really want to hear because now I got to I got to deal with a problem. What's the thing that you you have to go? Well, we need to talk about this thing here. It's it's that gypsum application. Um, that gypsum application is the big thing that, cause it's a, it's a pain. None of the co-ops want to apply it. Very few, I should say, want to, want to mess with it. Um, it's a pain to spread. They, they release to where a guy can store it more frequently, but it's not like lime. It's not that coarse material that spreads easily. It's more like a talcum powder where it can bridge up if done wrong. But there's a lot of people out here that's successfully spreading it because they're investing in the equipment to do so. You know, and that is kind of the big component of what we have to get guys to buy into that you have to make these gypsum applications to follow these recommendations. If not, you're not focusing on your your compaction problems you're not focusing on your over application of potassium which is also compounding with the amount of chloride that guys are putting on these fields collapsing their clay layers you might as well continue to farm traditionally right because you're not focusing on soil health at that point in time you're just trying to save dollars and eventually it could bite you in the rear end um so so looking at that report and having that that gypsum discussion and looking at those guys dead in the eyes and say, if you don't take anything out of this conversation today, take this, this has to be done for what you're trying to get accomplished to work. And so like, what kind of equipment do you have to have to put gypsum out there? Spreaders, you know, they make lime and gypsum spreaders. Um, I don't know the company. There are several companies that make them, but they kind of look like a litter spreader. Uh-huh. Um, they got a, a wider gate on the back of them. They got wider chains. They kind of rotate a little bit slower. Um, the sides of the spreaders are steeper, so it flows a little bit easier. But I've got clients that have got ag leader or new leader beds and that are using it, and they spread a 1,000 acres a year with it and have no problem. So it's just inconvenient because whenever you go to talking about putting on one to two tons of material um, compared to 200 pounds of material, right? It takes a lot longer to do that. So it's almost like a convenience factor. Well, I don't want to do that. It's too hard at work. It takes too much time. Yeah. And time is all you have, right? But if what's your time worth, right? Is it worth being able to reduce the amount of P and K a guy applies if the soil report says so, and you get better water infiltration rate, which is going to create bigger root masses, which is going to give you more production at the end of the year for just a little bit of an inconvenience up front? Or do you just want to continue to do what you do and collapse your soils? Because, you know, most producers want to pass their legacy on to the next generation. But if they continue to farm traditionally, they're compounding the problem for the next generation. Um, So at some point in time, 
that dynamic shift is going to have to change and you're going to have to break that cycle of, well, that's what my granddad did. That's what his dad did. That's what my dad did. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, well, in all my time in agriculture, I've never heard of anybody talking about spreading gypsum. How long until this becomes ubiquitous? Is it? And I'm just behind the times. It's in areas, right? So if you don't have those coal-fired power plants, they do have mine gypsum, like how they mine lime. Um, but with regulations and, and people trying to shut down coal power plants, like it's really critical that guys get their soils in balance now because, you know, if, if something calls for two tons of gypsum and you postpone it, and eventually the problem compounds long enough that you have to drive four hours away to truck it. Or like in our part of the world, it's 45 minutes away with the power plant that's closest to us. Aren't you better off getting it fixed now, knowing that down the road, maybe you only need a quarter of a ton compared to two tons. And so now the four hour trucking doesn't seem as bad because you're going to cover more acres with that, with that load. So you also test uh, water too, right? We we got into water testing about 10 years ago. So we had a local uh, state-ran lab in our hometown that tested potable water for municipalities and rural water districts. Um, the state shut it down about the same time that I was opening up the soil lab. And so we were fortunate enough to to allow the state to come in and train us up as a new lab to where we test water for, for cities and municipalities and rural water districts um, for total coliform and E. coli to make sure that the water that they're using out of their taps is, is safe. So what do, what do you know about drinking water that most people don't know? Uh, that there's usually not bacteria in it. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah, not very confident. Yeah. Well, you know, there's the occasion. A lot of times the way that you have to remember that because they're taking out of a faucet or something like that, that um, if we do have a positive sample come through, it's usually due to the lack of cleaning that happens inside. But um, everybody in Illinois water gets tested at least every other week, if not more frequent for this. So their water's constantly being looked at, um, to make sure that there's, there's not live bacteria inside it that can make them sick. So you're doing bacterial testing. You're not doing the Detroit style lead testing. Yeah. You know, that was a big thing that, that a lot of people kind of asked for, but there was a lot, a lot of regulations and, and red tape to jump through on that. Plus, they only have to do it so often, which we didn't see there being a need for it in our area. So we're just doing bacterial testing in, in that lab. And uh, so you get to see a lot of like different municipalities, uh, water treatment facilities, huh? We don't. They bring them to us. Oh, um, they have a they have a collector that brings them in. So they'll have to go through different stages of their uh, distribution and pull samples from a state-designated area. Like maybe it's uh, the school and the firehouse and the police station, right? If they're not all next to each other, <clears throat> they'll use those those areas to do it. Or um, And do they ever pop positive? Very rarely. Um, you know, if they put in, if they have a water main break and they got to shut the, shut the line down, they'll do boil orders 
well, you'll see them on the news or on the radio where it says, hey, this block's on a boil water due to the water main break. And so then they'll bring us the sample. We'll run it through our lab. And then if it doesn't come up with any bacteria, the water's good to go. Um, they can continue running. But if it if it pops positive, right, then you have the chance of getting sick. Um, so that's why they they give the boil order because the chlorine content that constantly runs through the lines, that's it, the little bit in the water keeps the bacteria from being alive um, inside of it. So. so the other testing that you do is in the cannabis industry. What needs to get tested in cannabis? We're getting into that. So we're going through the lab build out right now and we're getting ready to go through validations here in the next few months. But in the state of Illinois, they're regulating um, six different things. You have to have the potency, uh, mycotoxins, bacteria, terpenes, residual solvents, and heavy metals are the big thing that happens. And so once the once they have harvested their crop, we get a sample brought in uh, to the lab and then we'll analyze it for those things to make sure that there's no heavy metals or, or really bacteria, yeast mold, stuff like that growing on the flour. Um, then it'll go to the processor. Then once the processor makes their materials out of it, we can receive those samples back to run them through the same panel to make sure that anything that happened during the processing time frame uh, didn't contaminate the, the medication or whatever the guy wants to call it. And then once we give them their certificate analysis, we kind of label checked it to make sure, yeah, it's got this terpene profile. It has no heavy metals. It's at this potency. Then they can market it to the dispensaries for, for consumption. So really we're kind of playing FDA a little bit. Um, and we're just wanting to make sure the people that want to participate in that industry have a safe and pleasant experience in doing so. What's uh, harder about doing all this testing in cannabis than you originally thought? Putting it together. Um, I started this project about two years ago. And so, you know, it, it's got to be very clean. Um, you can do renovations on facilities, but it's almost better to build one out new, in my opinion. Um, the equipment, we run some of the same equipment in our soil lab. So the equipment company that we work with has been tremendous to, to kind of work through. And um, now the personnel, uh, finding qualified people to work inside the lab that you trust, that is going to do the job that you want to do. Um, because testing is all about the details, right? It's all about the details. You have to have very, very strenuous, detailed-oriented people. And no matter what lab we're discussing, um and the big thing is this sample collection. If you if you collect poor samples, not good quality, and you send those to the lab, well, you can expect those results to come back mis misunderstood or misrepresentative to the what the sample is going to be. But if you have good sample collection and protocols all the way through on every sample, and then the same expectation inside the lab, which we do, then the results that you're giving out are to the best the ability that they have. Um, so really focusing on those detailed-oriented people and the people that care about their job and want the company as a whole to succeed, right, is is what you're looking for um, in any of the businesses that 
or an operation. So as you oversee three separate businesses, do you enjoy being a, you know, the, the head of all, all, all three of these things? I do. I like the challenge. You know, my wife jokes about, well, what's next for you? You know, you don't even have the cannabis lab up and going and you're already thinking about the next thing and what the future may hold. Um, to me, it's about the challenge. I, I, I like puzzles. I like putting the pieces of things together, getting them operational and then allowing them to continue to operate with with overseeing them, putting people into place and what their roles are. Um, is a lot of fun to me. It's, it's like playing a chess game, but just, I do enjoy it. And how do you find the role? I mean, do people find you to be heretical in the ag space? Are you a, a target for ridicule or for controversy? You know, we really have kind of flown under the radar, um, for some time. This is really the first time in a public setting outside <laughs> of my group of people that I've really kind of, um, put what we do out there. And so, you know, we, we've been kind of the silent killers for a, a long time that just pick people off one by one and we're not for everybody. And we understand that and not everybody's going to think the way that we think, but we're for the people that want to get better with what they have that can think outside the box and has a different, different idea of the way agriculture is supposed to be done. Right. People, that's how the world works. Everybody's got their own ideas and beliefs. And what that guy does on his operation is what he's trying to get accomplished. You know, they've got a banker, they got a lawyer, they got an accountant, they've got an f- insurance agent. A lot of them don't have that soil and nutrient management guy, but yet we can, uh, we can adjust the balance sheet from our decisions more than any of these other three or four people can. That's a pretty bold statement. It's true. It goes back to that million dollar conversation. If he listens to the ag retailer, he's going to put a million more dollars into his crop this year than what I told him he needed to do. Which which one of those other four can do that? Yeah. No, well, and if, if your you know attorney's telling you that, like it's, it's probably not a good decision. It's probably not a good decision, <laughs> right? And so we can... We can with the recommendations that people make on the nutrient management and the fertilizer side of stuff can affect the crop. Now you got the chemistry guy. If he doesn't know what he's doing, can screw a crop up, up, but you got crop insurance for that. Right. To where this swings one way or the other, we're, we're just as influential as, as many of the other ones on the farm. So if somebody uh, heard this and they're either inflamed because they think you threw the agronomist under the bus, or they're super excited about having their own, um, soil sampling, uh, person, where, where should they go to, to contact you? Uh, Google element ag on the internet. I think it's elementag.org, um, is a great place to, to start out. I don't, don't yeah, quote we'll put me that on in that. the show notes. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. Cause I really don't know my own website, but, <laughs> um, that would be a great place to start to reach out for us. And, and it goes directly to my email and we can, have conversations based off of that, good or bad, right? Because we're all here as educators to learn and and to move. And maybe some guys experience something that's the total opposite of what I'm talking about that says, no, I did this and this is what we responded to. But then we can have that conversation. Well, did you think of it this way? Or did you actually do this with that? And it's a way to educate and, and move the ball with, with somebody else. Yeah, so. man, that's the whole life, right? Like yep. anybody that says, uh, like, I already know, 
it's they're they're gone right but there's it's great to have people criticize you and give you good feedback and well parker man thank you so much for uh coming by today i appreciate the opportunity this is this has been a lot of fun ah, ah, ah.